You're tuning in to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. In this episode, we have a lovely guest, Robert Jensen, an emeritus professor in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas in Austin. He also collaborates with the Ecosphere Studies Program at the Land Institute. He is author of The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability by the University Press of Kansas 2021. Jensen is also host and associate producer of Podcasts from the Prairie with Wes Jackson and associate producer of the forthcoming documentary film Prairie Prophecy, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson. I welcome Robert Jensen to Savage Minds. I've been a fan of yours since reading your earlier articles a few years back about the gender identity debate, which I thought were really coherent and thoughtful because as you probably were aware at the time, most of the people in the debate were, as they say in the UK, vagina havers. And we were sort of subjected to a lot of trolling just for stating things like, sex is real, <laughs> people can't yeah. change sex. And you know, suddenly science was up for debate, science was being turned on its head by people with a computer, yeah. which raises all sorts of questions. Uh, in terms of, you know, living in a democracy, being able to hear differing opinions. And then, you know, you're, you were at the School of Journalism and Media at UT. So you're not only part of a field of media dissemination, but you also taught young minds about the importance of covering stories. <laughs> yeah. What kind of challenges did you find wading into this debate? Well, uh... Let me give a bit of context. I, I discovered feminism in uh, 1988 when I went back to graduate school and I had to confront the, the feminist, the radical feminist critique of pornography, which at first I rejected like a lot of liberal men uh, who knew nothing and were steeped in a kind of privilege around uh, masculinity. Uh, but I had the great fortune of not only reading uh, important feminist work, but meeting a lot of feminists out in the community doing um, doing work. And I had to change my view because I saw that radical feminism presented a coherent critique of masculinity and patriarchy. I found that that critique not only helped explain the condition of girls and women, but it also helped me understand my own struggles with masculinity. And so, um, you know, around the age of 30, uh, I had to go through a process of, of changing everything I thought I knew. Uh, that turned out to be good practice to, to always recognize you might need to rethink some of your basic assumptions. And I tried to keep that in mind as I went through my, my teaching career. Uh, from a feminist perspective, of course, I always was looking at the effect of patriarchy and the way in which women are devalued and rendered invisible. So the, the transgender ideology that I think tries to, you know, as many people have put it, erase women, or at least erase women's biology, which is central to understanding patriarchy, of course, uh, that had, had been, you know, part of the feminist debate the entire time I've been active. But it was only, um, you know, in the 2000s that it really started to intensify and the debate started to get ugly. And so uh, 
I, I actually feel I was late in coming to that debate and I was late in coming for the same reason many people were, they were afraid of getting into such a, a, a contentious public debate. But eventually um, I felt I didn't really have a choice. Uh, some feminist colleagues challenged me, said, why are you not weighing in on this? You've weighed in on pornography, you've weighed in on prostitution, you haven't shied away from difficult subjects, why this? And, and that spurred me to write. And when I wrote, I tried to write in very clear, concise, ways asking basic questions and offering a feminist challenge to the ideology. So that's a long-winded story about how I got into it. Um, and I think another important thing to recognize is, you know, I took some flack for it. I had speaking engagements canceled. I had people shout at me now and then. But the, the uh, abuse I have put up with because I have written about the incoherence of transgender ideology is nothing like the abuse women have suffered. And I think there's an important lesson in that, that um, it's in some sense, it's always easier being a man, even when you wade into these kind of debates. Well, I did write a lot of uh, writers who were male who had written about this debate. I don't remember if I wrote you actually, but I was writing quite a few around 2015-ish. And I would ask them straight out, you know, I would say, oh, I loved your piece. And by the way, have you been getting a lot of death and, you know, other threats? Yeah. And invariably the answer was no. In yeah. a couple cases, uh, two writers would be like, yeah, a little bit on social media, but nothing like what you guys get. Yeah. And so there was an acknowledgement that they got it very light. Um, and it's, it's quite a paradox, isn't it, Bob? Because, you know, here we were, you know, entering into the beginning years of the new millennium, and it seemed like women's rights took a step back. Obviously, we're not demoted to, you know, a physical space of, of torture or whatnot, but our ability to speak freely has definitely been curtailed to include yeah yours by proxy, other men's by proxy. I'm sure you know what happened to people like Grand Linehan and others. And so the trolling is all to send a message about behave TWAW. And yet the same narrative is unable to coherently evolve its own arguments. It comes down to calling names, turf, transfer, what have you. But the argument's never been clarified because I've said from the very beginning, I am happy to change my views when I'm presented with ample evidence. And what I've seen to date is women is being maybe, you know, like some other feminists say, erased. The linguistic term, absolutely. Hence, we're uterus havers, people who menstruate, people who give birth, etc. But it's also about erasing the fact that we can read, think, and cogitate on our own and come up with ideas such as, wait, that doesn't sound right. What does this mean, feeling like a woman? Because I thought that's what the 20th century was a pushback to, that we could somehow accept that like men can do cooking, so can women. They can also make beds and clean the house. What happened? where identity in the early millennium that we're now living together through in this weird pandemic time, what happened that people are struggling 
to come to terms with science as we're living in this past year, one of the most scientifically riveted times in recent history. Yeah. At the same time where human rights are in peril because of these very, I will say narcissistic identities, because these yeah. identity politics are all about the individual, nothing to do with the group. Yeah, let me go back. I, I mentioned that my first exposure to feminism was through the feminist anti-pornography movement. And let me let me just go off to the side a bit and, and offer another example of, uh, you know, what we might call two steps forward, one step back. Uh, certainly feminism has advanced the interest of women, but it's not been without pushback, as you point out. So I think back to the late 1980s when I first got involved. Uh, Andrea Dworkin's critique of pornography, which was then amplified by many other women, uh, was a, a point of great debate back then, but it was part of the mainstream conversation. And of course, that feminist critique of pornography, looking back at what, you know, by comparative terms is the, fair, the fairly tame pornography of the 70s and 80s, had identified the deeply patriarchal nature of pornography, the way that pornography, as Andrea helped us understand, eroticizes domination and subordination. Okay. Well, I thought that was a compelling critique when I first ran into it back in the late 1980s. I would suggest that the last 40 years have demonstrated how accurate that critique was. What has happened to the pornography industry? Well, it's expanded dramatically. It's become more overtly cruel and degrading to women. It's become more overtly racist. The way that pornography eroticizes domination and subordination is now undeniable. So let's just pause for a second. You have a radical feminist critique that, that four decades ago identified the core problem of pornography. Over those four decades, that feminist critique has proved to be the most accurate account of pornography. Yet that feminist critique is now almost invisible in the mainstream. Even in women's studies departments, at least in American universities, it's considered a fringe point of view. It's often ignored, sometimes even mocked. I've had students tell me that their anti-pornography comments in women's studies classes were, were mocked, that, that other students laughed at them for them. Okay. How did we get to a place where the most compelling critique that helps us understand this very disturbing social phenomenon is ignored? Okay, well, I'm gonna give you my answer. My answer is that this culture has a hard time confronting patriarchy. That's kind of an obvious point, I know, but I think we need to remind ourselves over and over again that patriarchy of all of the social hierarchies, patriarchy is the one that goes back furthest in human history, probably you know, four or five, 6,000 years. And it's deeply woven into the fabric of everyday life. And when you challenge the, the way that goes so deep, well, you get pushback from the culture. So I think we have a lot of examples of where feminism, especially the radical feminism that I think is most compelling, has made very good arguments, presented very con uh, conclusive evidence, and simply been ignored. Um, that's a disturbing reality, but I think we have to come to terms with that reality. Absolutely. Uh, the work of people like Gail Dines is gaining more attention in recent years, in large part because of social media. I do worry, however, with the glamorization 
of, as you amply put, uh, support the, the eroticization of subordination and domination, that we're facing a problem within cultures such as our own, you know, and especially in the West where capitalism is part of the problem, right? This idea that people can be empowered as, you know, I'm a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, you know, peel that onion because when you start to look at the data of who is a quote unquote sex worker, um, a huge number, the majority, were inculcated into this quote unquote profession when children. And that goes completely unanalyzed. It's never mentioned in the media. Instead, what you have are UN organizations going out to developing countries, giving out money, but now casting a possible trade as sex work for people who would otherwise be in the West, children. I've seen this. And this yeah. is really shocking to me where there's this notion of, well, if I say I wanted it and I own it, then it's not oppressive, right? Because that's a big yeah. part of the Western pop psychology ethos from the 1980s, actually. If you can turn oppression on its head and say, well, I wasn't raped, <laughs> you know, or I wasn't exploited, because there's some kind of double sided coin here where we want to out oppression at the same time own it then we're not really oppressed. And I think that's something that American culture struggles with enormously. Yeah. Uh, The the individualism uh, that you talk about is central to sex worker ideology. You strip away all of the structural and social forces and you reduce it to an individual choice at a specific moment in time. Uh, What's curious about that is uh, you know, we expect conservatives to make individualistic arguments because they don't want to think about social forces. But it's funny when the left, which is is a political movement that always looks at structure and institutions, when the political left reverts to that liberal individualism, you can see there's something going on here about patriarchy, about the fear of confronting patriarchy. And I think you're pointing to the way that you know, so-called sex work ideology has developed is very important. Uh, when, when people throw that back at us and say, well, are you trying to deny individual women's choices? The answer is, of course, no. But in any social analysis, we look not just at individual choices, but the conditions under which people choose. If you'll allow me a, a brief digression, I, I, I used to always... Uh, tell my students uh, when they would make that argument. I would say, listen, uh, this is a big class. Uh, and I used to teach classes of two, 300 students. And I was kind of forced to give multiple choice tests as a way of generating you know, data to grade. And so I would always do this little experiment with students in those classes. I would say, how many of you think multiple choice tests are the best way to evaluate your learning? And everybody would laugh because of course, students hate multiple choice tests. Everybody knows they're, they're kind of a joke. And uh, so no one would raise their hand. And I would say, okay, you don't think the multiple choice test is a good way to evaluate your learning. Yet next week, I'm gonna give you a multiple choice test. How many of you are gonna take it? And they would all grudgingly raise their hand. And I would say, okay, are you choosing to take a, an exam that you know to be a joke? And the answer, of course, is yes, they're choosing in some sense, 
But they also know that if they choose not to take the exam, they won't pass the class. They'll have to retake the class. It'll cost them extra time and money. It will delay their degree plan. I said, okay, so are you choosing to take that exam? Well, in some sense, yes, you, you can choose not to. But the conditions under which you're choosing are such that it's a almost a preordained conclusion. And that's true of everything in life. You know, we all choose, but we choose under certain conditions of opportunity and conditions of constraint. So you have to look at those conditions. And as you point out, if you look at the conditions under which women uh, allegedly choose to enter into prostitution or pornography or stripping or any of what I call the sexual exploitation industries, well, you find there are some patterns that the women who choose that typically don't come from wealthy families. There is an economic constraint. You find that there are lower levels of education. You find there are uh, disproportionately high rates of childhood sexual assault, disproportionately high rates of drug and alcohol addiction. Well, you add all those up and what are the conditions under which people choose? That's the real question, of course, because we're all collectively responsible for those conditions, which is, I think, partly why people revert to individualistic frameworks. It, it absolves us in some sense of our yes, own and, accountability. And living in a capitalistic society, one of the forces that both government and media divert our gaze from is the very discussion of class issues. See it all the time. We saw it throughout the run up to the presidential elections. Yep. We see it around the gender debate, frankly, because the, much of the gender theory was created by and for a very elite class of people. This was not created in the poorest parts of East yeah. St. Louis. This was created by people who came from very elite backgrounds, yes. who were in a way creating the future printout for jobs that would be handed to people who echoed that ideology, hence the institutional capture that's rife everywhere. Uh, in the US, the HRC 20 years ago used to be devoted to people like me, gay and lesbians, <laughs> today has focused its energies and monies and fake news on a transgender ideology. And it's the first time in my lifetime that I can, you know, unless we, you know, take the Bay of Pigs or something, but where mainstream media has focused so much on a propped up narrative without yeah. any kind of proof. I mean, if Dr. Fauci were to be speaking every night about this, he would have just left the podium because the, the scientific evidence is lacking. The social contagion is certainly there. And yet we're hearing in this past year, first, number one, of course, is coronavirus. And number two, would arguably more about transgender identity than the travesties of Yemen and Syria. And this concerns me as a leftist. It concerns me as a human too. Like what in the heck is going on that our media is so obsessed with this? I mean, you're coming from this background, right? <laughs> well, let me offer a, a suggestion. I mean, it's, you know, we're all speculating on why the transgender ideology took hold in mainstream and liberal societies as well as on the left. But let me go back to something I said earlier about the feminist critique of pornography, which is a compelling way to understand the development of the pornography industry, yet it's largely marginalized. 
And the reason I, I suggest it is because it forces it to look, you know, at the nature of patriarchy, not only as an abstract concept, but the way it plays out in our own lives, which is very difficult for obvious reasons. Well, why is the transgender ideology in a fairly short period of time become so popular? I, I'm going to speculate that it's, it's because it allows people, you know, mainstream liberal and left people to assert that they are dealing with the problem of patriarchy without dealing with it at all. In other words, if you embrace the transgender ideology, it makes you look radical. It makes you look like you're striking at the heart of patriarchal gender norms. And people embrace it, I think, because it is easy to embrace it. It, it requires no cost for you uh, if you're you know, in fairly elite circles. And it makes it look like you're engaged in feminist politics. Although I would argue in a, in a deep sense, it's an anti-feminist politics. And so rather than dealing with the, the difficult questions of uh, the conditions of women's lives, uh, in, women in poverty, women with no control over their reproductive power, uh, women who are exploited sexually on a regular basis, instead of dealing with all of those difficult things which implicate all of us in a day-to-day -day way, it's relatively easy to embrace a transgender ideology that might for you have no costs. And it then creates the appearance that one is in fact doing something. And I think that might be part of why that ideology has taken root so quickly, especially in relatively elite institutions, especially universities, which is what I know best, the way it became uh, uh, almost a kind of uh, unchallengeable ideology in the university. Now, I retired from teaching in 2018, and I didn't retire because of the atmosphere around the transgender ideology, but I could already see that I was going to be the subject of complaints. I was a couple of times. I was ready to retire anyway, and I have to say I was, I was glad I don't have to face that within an institution. But of course, even if I'm not in an institution anymore, it's still part of the culture and we all have to push back against, uh, as you pointed out, an ideology that has never really made a coherent explanation for what it contends. Um, and I can say more about why I think that is. I'm definitely interested in hearing about what your thoughts are. Well, I, you know, you, you mentioned I came out of a journalism background I taught in a journalism school. I was trained to write in simple and concise fashion, which was lucky for me because I'm not that smart. So, you know, simple and concise works for me pretty easily. But as I watched that debate emerging around transgender ideology, I tried to reduce it to, you know, clear questions that people could understand. So the first question I asked is if transgender ideology suggests that someone who is biologically male, such as myself, uh, I'm not intersex, which is a, a biological category of people with uh, ambiguous sexual and secondary sexual characteristics. I'm not intersex. I'm biologically male by all criteria. If I were to say I am female, my first question is what could that possibly mean? I, I, I simply don't understand the claim. And I don't say that in a mocking form. I'm 
it's literally accurate. I do not understand what that could mean when someone says I am biologically male at birth, but now have become female. Okay. Now, as you pointed out, if transgender means I'm biologically male, but I am uncomfortable with the gender norms that are imposed on men in patriarchy. Well, that I can understand perfectly well because so many of us have experiences where we don't fit exactly into the gender roles, okay? But if that's what transgender means, that I'm simply uncomfortable with the gender roles in patriarchy, again, as you pointed out, then the appropriate strategy is to challenge the gender norms in patriarchy. It's to challenge the way we've taken masculinity and femininity and created these very hardened categories for behavior. That's feminism, all right? So in a sense, the, the most active critique of gender norms that I've ever seen comes from feminism, especially radical feminism. So if transgenderism means that one can be male but suddenly become female, I simply don't understand that. If it means that we should challenge the gender norms in patriarchy, I understand that and believe feminism to be the more effective vehicle for that. And then the third point I've made is, is a, a, a much, in a sense, more human and empathetic one is if people feel that their, their sense of self is inconsistent with their, their physical body, I can imagine how distressing that is. I've had little small glimpses of that in my own life, growing up as someone who wasn't traditionally masculine, although I've never had anything like what psychologically we call gender dysphoria, but I can certainly empathize with the distress that that causes. When you actually read about uh, what was once called sex reassignment surgery, sometimes they now call it gender confirmation surgery, but when you read about the actual physical reality of that surgery, when you read about experiences with cross-sex hormones, you realize that this is a very dangerous and difficult manipulation of the body. I, I, in my book, I quote a transgender writer, someone from the transgender movement, who said, it may seem at times like we are at war with our own bodies. And I thought that was telling and very honest because in some sense, all of that medical intervention is about being at war with your own body. The long-term psychological and physical costs of that, we don't know. There has simply been inadequate research. But as just as a human being, I find that deeply distressing that people are at war with their own bodies. And the quick way that we accept a medical intervention and then call that science, even though there's no meaningful science to explain it, I think is very distressing. Uh, so that question, the, the feminist challenge, and the expression of real concern for people uh, has been my attempt to kind of tone down the angry rhetoric and say, let's try and talk about the transgender ideology with those three points in mind. Certainly there's, a lot to empathize with people who are feeling lost with their identity and or their yeah. bodies. But you and I have both witnessed this surge in, in what was once an anomaly uh, where gender dysphoria, once upon a time gender identity disorder, was 
relatively tiny percent of the population and now seems to be what many are calling a social trend and arguably yeah. visibly is. And it's really hard in this era of, of no platforming, of online you know, threats and so forth to speak reason with people. And one thing I really like about the podcast format, we, we can even call this you know, radio format once upon a time is that people can actually connect and talk. But there seems to be within some of these microstructures, these groups that want to push their will, as you said a little bit ago, you know, um, if, if these men, let's say, really are uncomfortable with the odds between their feeling of their identity and their bodies, wouldn't the right thing be to push back on patriarchy rather than create or continue the creation of the stereotype, which many of the feminists, radical feminists included, are saying gender is only visible at stereotype. Without, without gender, there's nothing. Like in, in the sense of, we can only say what a woman is, what a woman feels like if you rely entirely on a stereotype. And I find this interesting because as a woman myself, who happens to have what many say is a man's name, I really couldn't care less that I get emails every day to Mr. Vigo. Happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I also am one to think, you know, I'm more of a skeptical person when it comes to the pushing of, of drugs, uh, the restless leg syndrome commercials that seem to permeate the late 1990s television in the US. Remember those? And yeah. there seems to always be a drug for something. So I'm more of a skeptic when I see pharmaceutical companies edging their way into people's living rooms. When I see a generation of kids being raised on, oh, your child doesn't have ADHD and a few other letters added. It, it, we're living in a world where identities are more and more being formulated around illnesses. I do think that even then, there's a hesitancy for us to talk about any kind of psychic distress without that being, you know, triggering or someone going for their safety pin. It's made me think a lot in the way in which these identities are allotting a certain kind of community to the most privileged. We're at odds with finding our cultural into yeah. integration in a sense. Who are we today post-internet? You know, where most people are spending an inordinate amount of time online and that's their social, where more and more people are off of the you know, IRL discovery of the world. So many people don't have in real life interactions like they used to, especially with the virus. I was listening to your podcast from the Prairie with Wes Jackson. It was the episode in which, you know, it begins with this explication of why he is also an artist. Mm -hmm. And I find this interesting because in the world that we're living, we make these strict divisions and historically as well, where, you know, once upon a time, men were making art women were, ma were making crafts, you know, women knit and they darned socks and men did Sistine chapels or, you yeah. know, statues made of marble. And I see that divide along ecological lines. Uh, I've been a lot involved in permaculture in the UK. And I saw where some of the tropes of, you know, what the feminists call patriarchy, um, still pervade within social circle, circles around, let's say, permaculture, 
But then when you strip that, that all down, you get back to, well, you know, the lovely discussion you and Jackson had about what creativity is, what creation is. And you talk about serendipitous creativity as a metaphor for God, you know? And I think it's very interesting to, to understand how the division of, let's say, the traditional masculine and feminine are completely uprooted when one turns towards ecology, the land mm -hmm. growing. Yeah, uh, and I think there's a reason for that because our, our evolutionary history isn't defined by patriarchy. Uh, so if you'll excuse a kind of you know, long-term perspective and going back thousands of years in history, one of the things that, that patriarchy asserts over and over again, of course, is that this is just the way things are, that this is natural, that this is inevitable, that human beings are wired, to use that term, for male dominance. And of course, we know that's not true. All of the anthropology explains to us that patriarchy is a fairly recent phenomenon in human history, probably you know in the last 5,000 years, certainly no older than, than 10,000 years with the beginnings of agriculture. So that's not to suggest that, you know, human beings are, are, have some sort of romanticized idyllic past, um, but it's to recognize that patriarchy is a historical phenomenon. And I think it's always important to push against that. So the, I have discovered in my own life that the more critical and the deeper my critique of patriarchy can go, the more ecological I become as well. Uh, so I think that's important. But um, you've thrown out so many really important questions. I wanna go back to, to two um, that I think are important contradictions in the transgender ideology. One is uh, about drugs. And I think you made a very important point that we should be skeptical about the way in which uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the, the modern medical industry more generally sells us pharmaceutical responses to our problems. And so think of uh, a kind of ecologically conscious liberal left parents. Uh, they're very skeptical about the kind of chemicals they put in their children's bodies. Uh, you know, they buy organic, they're concerned about toxic waste and all these kind of things, and that's appropriate. Yet in the transgender movement, there's a, an attempt to normalize puberty suppression, what are called puberty blockers, the off-label use of certain drugs to inhibit the development of puberty on the theory that a child who's very young can know he or she is transgender and therefore blocking puberty will make transition easier. Well, the contradiction is quite glaring. Parents who wouldn't feed their own children, you know, genetically modified corn will embrace a very unstudied use of a drug to block normal human development. That's a strange situation that we're in right there. The other contradiction I think we need to come to terms with is, and, and you pointed to this as well, uh, is the state of being transgender a natural normal phenomenon, which the transgender movement sometimes asserts, or is it a psychological condition that needs treatment? Well, it can't be both. If gender dysphoria is a psychological condition involving distress over the incongruence between one's own sense of self and one's body, then that is 
something we would categorize as a psychological disorder and maybe it needs treatment. But at the same time, the transgender movement says, oh, this is all natural and normal. Well, which is it? These are the kind of contradictions that as you point out, if you bring up, you're immediately labeled a bigot. And so really serious questions are precluded from public discussion, not based on a, a really defensible claim that they are hateful and bigoted, but I think simply because they're inconvenient for the transgender movement. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Certainly, it is a, a movement that traffics in so much incoherence, I throw my hands up half the time. I remember about four years ago, five years ago, it was quite uh, avant-garde to say in that movement, oh, that's my gender presentation, not my gender identity. Have you been in that whirlpool of what's the difference? And no explanation aside from clothes or the presentation feeling, it, it, it becomes so, it becomes so troubling because I, I think back to Adolf Reed's article about Bruce Jenner and Rachel Dolezal for which he got a lot of slack, uh, a lot of flack. And he was basically you know, pointing out the incoherence there as well, where we would not tolerate a Rachel Dolezal, but what makes it okay for there to be a Caitlyn Jenner without yeah. the same interrogation and I mean, Dolitza was slammed within minutes of her enunciation. And frankly, you know, no one knows what happened to her. <laughs> you know, Jenner, however, is celebrated all the time. I, I don't even know. I mean, uh, I, he's in his 70s. Um, his love life is, ca is covered by, you know, Mirror and so forth in the UK. It's, it's almost perverse. Like you wouldn't see a man of his age who was not transgender covered in this way. Somehow, the media likes the clicks. It's, it's become an obsession for people to click on these articles so they can see the latest in, you know, almost car crash on the side of the highway. Uh, again, these, yeah. and I'm not talking about gore. I'm talking about what makes media make money on the one hand, what makes people click, and then a basic lack of being in touch with the world. Because, you know, when I came, I lived in Austin briefly, by the way. And oh. I had very good friends, one in the communications department, one in the architecture department. She had a gallery there, my dear friends. Oh, I miss them. And she took me to Marfa, where Donald Judd, you know, has his big ranch uh, slash art installation. And one thing I really learned a lot in that trip was about land art and its importance within American history, history and American history itself, not just art history. And the interesting thing is one of the great land artists, Robert Smithson said that the last vestige of 19th century romanticism is the concept of nature, which has resonated with me for years. 
because I keep thinking, you know, what he was saying isn't that nature doesn't exist, but in the way that he and Nancy Holt and Donald Judd went about trying to make shapes in the middle of nat natural spaces was not at all akin to people screwing up their bodies. Not just, I mean, you know, what you mentioned about children is condemnable. There was a study that came out of the Tavistock that was only published last week, but they've had under their noses for a year now. And it confirmed that children having their hormones blocked by drugs such as Lupron have devastating side effects that have everything to do with the loss of bone density, height. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's damning. It's so damning that people should be on the streets for this, honestly, and this should be ended. But put that aside, the fact that we are treating psychic conditions with medicine only to then hear the very same speakers who've said that they needed a doctor to intervene. A few years later, a few days later, four tweets later say, but it's my identity and it should be demedicalized. Yeah. This is really shocking to me because we're facing a vast ecological destruction. There was practically no winter where I live. None. I didn't even have to get out a winter jacket. Uh, I'm worried about not just the planet, but how are we going yeah. to sustain with a population of the planet that is not getting smaller? Yeah, that's a, a very important point. And, and let's go back. Um, and I'm going to kind of emphasize this over and over again, because I think it gets lost is those of us who have been critical, and I keep using the phrase of the transgender ideology, uh, are in my experience, not critical of people struggling with gender dysphoria. Uh, we're not a, a group of people who are inhuman and cruel. Uh, I know a lot of people in the feminist movement very well, and it's consistently a group of people who are humane and compassionate and do what they do out of a, a concern for suffering, not out of some sick desire to increase suffering. So let's go back to this concern you, you're uh, highlighting about the effects of uh, uh, puberty blockers. Uh, and I'm gonna make this very personal. Uh, I grew up, I was, very, I was a very short and small and effeminate boy growing up. Uh, I didn't develop uh, as quickly as most other boys. Uh, and and I, when I try to explain this to people, I often show them a, show them a picture from when I would have been, you know, roughly 14. Uh, just the story is it's my confirmation picture in the church I grew up in. We got confirmed at that age as, you know, adult members of the church. And I'm dressed in a painfully, you know, unfashionable 1970s uh, wardrobe. But what's interesting about that photograph is if you looked at it quickly, you might easily think it's of a young girl. I looked like a girl in a lot of ways. My voice had not changed. People misunder, uh, on the phone, people would assume I was a girl, right? Uh, I didn't conform to any of the stereotypes of, of masculinity. Okay, this was the early 1970s. And the idea of being transgender didn't really exist in the world I grew up in. Now, my childhood was not easy. There's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of pain. But I ask myself, if I was that same child today in you know mainstream liberal society, 
it's very likely I might be encouraged, especially if I'm on certain social media, I might be encouraged to identify as transgender. Now, I can easily imagine that the psychological distress I was feeling as being, you know, a young boy who didn't meet masculinity norms, it might have been very tempting to want to say, oh, here's the explanation. I'm transgender. And I'm not being glib about this. I can easily imagine how that would have been a way out for me. But I asked myself, would that have been a positive? Would that have helped me deal with the fact that there was nothing wrong with me? I just didn't fit a social category. Uh, if I had decided that I was transgender and actually wanted to go through medical transition, what would the implications of that for me have been? Uh, and I, I just want to tell that story to point out that um, most of us have some experience of not fitting in. It's painful uh, in a society based on so many hierarchies and so much cruelty. Uh, but those of us who critique the transgender ideology are so routinely called bigots or, or, or described as hateful. And, and that's very painful for me to, for somebody, when I think about my own struggles, for somebody to say, well, you hate people who are struggling. Uh, I don't know, I just find that very, quite frankly, very depressing because I don't know where society is gonna go if that's the accusation being thrown at people who just wanna ask meaningful questions. Well, also the fact that, and this has been pointed to feminists as well, I hate to say, but some people have said, well, this is schadenfreude for feminists who were posing the uh, we're oppressed narrative for so long, now it's been turned on them. And although I understand where such a statement's coming from, I think feminism was getting at a very historical material real reality and analysis, because when you're talking about the female body, you're literally mm -hmm. talking about the female body. It wasn't how they identify, how we feel. What, what worries me about the narrative of gender identity, <laughs> all of the flavors now, we've gotten how many identities out there. It's all about this kind of co-optation of women's lives and bodies on the one hand. It's very much about vestiture. I'd say it's mostly, almost 99% about vestiture. I mean, do we have any trans-identified men out there uh, who, you know, males who say, I feel like a woman because I want to be doing most of the domestic chores? Of course not. And I worry about the fetishism. And I think that needs to be discussed without people being called hateful because the evidence is there. It's not like we have to dig for it, it's there. The vituperation and harassment of people who try to speak such as yourself, myself, it's, it's there. And so when women say, well, this is a men's right, organization or movement, I can't help but agree because it seems like this is just a stealth way of bringing in Archie Bunker 2.0, if you catch my drift. And yeah, I do, I, you know, I worry about the fact that we can't speak to this now. It's worse than Archie Bunker, at least Edith. There was that one episode when Edith was like, I'm not bringing you the beer, Archie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so you're, you're identifying something that has been uh, you know, discussed a long time, which is any time you have a social movement that challenges a hierarchy, 
whether it's you know challenges to white supremacy or challenges to capitalism, uh, there's always a backlash. I know Susan Faludi famously wrote a book called Backlash to talk about how the the advances made by second wave feminism in the U.S. and the the larger world in the 70s and 80s sparked a backlash and the the surge that's really captured most in Rush Limbaugh, the right wing talk show host's famous um, coining of feminazi to describe anyone who's challenging this incredible structure of domination and subordination as, as like a Nazi. So this backlash is, I guess, something one just expects. But I think what you're getting at is uh, we expect it from conservatives. Uh, what I think has taken a lot of us by surprise is how the backlash now has morphed into a very strange ideology that is embraced by liberals and the left. And I, I, I want to keep going back to the feminist critique of uh, prostitution and pornography of sexual exploitation, because I think there are some, you know, important um, patterns here that when the feminist movement goes too deeply to the heart of patriarchy, which is the way men claim a right to own or control women's bodies, whether that's women's reproductive power or women's sexuality, whenever feminism challenges that basic right that men claim, there is a backlash. And the backlash has morphed into very strange ways, such as, you know, left-wing people claiming that so-called sex work is liberating for women, that putting women in a subordinated position, allowing men to buy and sell objectified female bodies for sexual pleasure is somehow liberating. It's kind of a topsy-turvy world in that way. And so I think we have to go back to very basic questions. And this is the question, for instance, I ask when people challenge the feminist critique of pornography and prostitution. I say, let's just, let's assume that everybody in the conversation wants to see what we might call gender justice, a world in which women are not systematically placed below men in a hierarchy. So let's assume on good faith that, that we all want to see gender justice. And then I ask, can you imagine any society ever achieving that gender justice? if one class of people, that is women, can be routinely bought and sold for the sexual pleasure of another class, that is men. Can you imagine gender justice when that condition exists? And I think the, the painful answer is no, you can't imagine it. So if we claim to want to create the society free of that domination subordination dynamic, I don't see how so-called sex work is consistent with that yet liberals and the left embrace it. Those are the kind of things, I don't think there's anything hateful in what I just said. I don't think there's anything that's uh, uh, insulting to women who are in prostitution or pornography. It's not an expression of hatred for the women who are in those uh, sexual exploitation industries. It's a, it's a concern about those women and the society more generally. And it's kind of a, you know, I, it's kind of a desperate plea. Can we please tell the truth? Yeah, it, I don't know why, but this is making me very emotional. Yes, well, I, I hear you. I hear you because so much of what we're living, Robert, is about the fact that we're denying reality and embracing a complete lie and selling it as empowerment. 
I mean, can we just deal with, you know, the world is an ugly place on every front. If you want to look at the resurgence of overt white supremacy in the US and around Europe, if you want to look at the growing inequality between rich and poor in capitalism, if you want to look at the, the routine way in which sexual violence against women and girls is, is endemic in the world, right? And then, of course, if you want to, as you pointed out, ecologically, if you want to look at the, the degree to which humans are destroying the ecosystems on which our own lives depend, it's an ugly world. I mean, there's just no getting around it. But my point is none of that is going to get better if we engage in denial about that ugliness. We have to face it. Now, you know, we've been talking in general terms, but I want to point out that as a man who's worked in feminism, I have always understood that my audience is men. I'm never trying to tell women what to think. I don't, you know, it's not my place to, to, to preach to women. I've always seen my role as saying to men, listen, I have been immersed in a feminist critique of patriarchy and I have seen its power. And I am asking you, maybe even demanding that you confront it as well. It's the same as a white person, which I am. You know, I don't need to talk to people of color. I need to talk to other white people about the corrosive nature of white supremacy. As someone who's financially comfortable, I, you know, I had a professional job. I'm a middle-class American. It's my place to say, listen, capitalism has made my life comfortable, but it is a fundamentally immoral system. Uh, these are the kind of painful things we have to face and we have to face each other uh, as we do it. And I, I just wish there was more space for that kind of honest account. And I think one reason, again, I'm speculating here, but I think one reason there's so little space is it's painful to do this. It hurts. Even if you're in a relatively comfortable position, once you recognize all of this, there's a certain amount of moral and psychological distress that is inevitable. How did we get to this place as a species? And I think that's what we have to face if we're gonna make a world fit for human beings to live in as well as other animals. For your recent book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson takes up issues on sustainability. Yeah. Is there <clears throat> something that can come of feminism that will reflect positively on our collective search for sustainability? Well, I think, uh, you know, I would say, I was going to say decent people, although that's a bit loaded, but I do think decent people agree that if there's going to be a world that's consistent with our own stated principles, and most of us have principles around things like dignity and equality and solidarity, that we have to confront the questions of social justice and we have to confront the questions around ecological sustainability. That is, if we continue on the path of the human species, there is gonna be no world left for us to live in. And if we don't deal with the questions of social justice, the world we live in won't be worth living in, in a sense, if we can't create a, a, a stable, decent human community. So I think those two things are always linked. And they're linked, of course, because the problem is one of hierarchy. It's one of dominance, whether it's humans asserting the right to dominate the rest of the, the living world, whether it's men asserting a right to dominate women, whites asserting a right to dominate non-white people, the wealthy asserting a right to dominate 
poor and working people, they're all of a, of a kind. It's the assertion of a right to dominance that comes with hierarchy. And so in some sense, it's all one struggle. Uh, I don't want to reduce the complexity and the, the, the particular nature of each of those struggles. But I think once you understand the problem of hierarchy and dominance in one of those arenas, and for me, it was coming into feminism that first helped me understand that. If you're principled and consistent, eventually you have to confront them all. And what we're talking about is confronting them all is not easy, right? It's hard. Uh, but I think, you know, this term that you, you hear used so casually these days on the left, intersectionality, it's an important concept. It, it, it's about the way that all of these struggles are related. Yet, I think feminists have put forward important components of that intersectional struggle and been often denounced for it because feminists, especially the radical feminists we're talking about, have put forward a critique that is not easy to confront. And um, I guess that's the plea, the plea to, to look at what's so hard and do it collectively and support each other. Well, capitalism always um, relies upon the choice. And this is a huge problem in Western societies that if we don't have choice, we're therefore being denied, we're living under Cuba, 1950, et cetera, et cetera. All the, you know, we've heard all the yeah. uh, parallels. And, you know, people who defend prostitution are accuse us of, of being prudes. But the whole idea of, of choice as a point of departure for their view of feminism is problematic because it completely elides any discussion of class. It, it elides discussion, especially of children's rights, uh, human trafficking. <laughs> Again, mm -hmm. I mean, these can't be overstated because human trafficking is becoming a worse, not a better problem in our collective history. I worked yeah. on human trafficking projects in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. And I, I, let me tell you, there are things I wish I could unsee. Yeah. Um, I, I put Foucault into practice actually, because there was a whole aspect of what UNICEF was doing in Haiti that was really troubling to me by working in tandem with local adoption agencies. Of course, the model was, you know, what Foucault critiqued in terms of biopower. And I'm thinking, well, what is this? Setting up the perfect family, as long as they come over with Christian credentials and have money, they're fine. And, you know, there, were, there was a lot of lack of oversight from various agencies that have been sending their NGO representatives to the country. And I kept thinking, because these kids were trafficked. You know, I mean, they were trafficked as near as Dominican Republic and as far as, you know, various parts of Canada and the US. And I was really troubled by the fact that this was all done with the ethos of humanitarian aid. You talk to people in the UN and they'd say, oh, my mission is, and I was like, you know, thinking back to uh, the Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro film, right? The mission. And I kept thinking about the church's mission. And I wondered then, has NGO work and relief work just become a replacement for the old Christian missions and then the colonies? Because all of these, these pieces of the puzzle 
put together and then today with the echo side that we're witnessing we see who has and who doesn't have the power so class is fundamental because it was not the wealthy Haitians being trafficked it was not usually boys were trafficked but when it came to adults being trafficked they were female so you know your book is in your podcast as well. I really love it, by the way. It, it oh, deals with the very present reality of our current ecological condition. It deals also with the way in which humans are creative in the larger world without necessarily, like Wes Jackson, without necessarily being a quote-unquote artist or artiste. Can you speak about your work both on the book and the podcast and how you came into it? Yeah, that's, uh, it's a, a great uh, story in some sense. But when I first bumped into radical feminism, you know, more than 30 years ago now, uh, I had a, you know, a trusted male colleague and I, I, I always want to say his name out loud, Jim Copland, he's now dead, a great friend for 25 years. Uh, but he was a role model for how to be a principled man in a feminist movement. I met him in the feminist anti-pornography movement. Uh, and, and Jim had been a professor and part of radical movements. He was, uh, you know, lived through the, the 60s, 70s movements of the 80s. But he was also a farm boy. And he had a very deep understanding of the ecological crisis that came from growing up in a rural area. And he, in addition to, you know, recommending books by Andrea Dworkin and Jan Raymond and others, uh, he recommended that I read a, a, a guy named Wes Jackson, who's a, a big, uh, one of the founding members really of the sustainable agriculture movement and an early uh, uh, proponent of environmental education. Well, Wes uh, has been working on a, an approach to agriculture. It's a long story, I won't go into the details that could be, could end up being really important in the human ability to continue to feed ourselves in an ecologically sustainable manner. But more than Wes's, you know, agronomy, his focus on plant breeding and various strategies for sustainable agriculture, I was attracted to Wes's point of view, a way of looking at the world and understanding the human subordination of nature. Now, there are many different ways to look at that, indigenous traditions, more traditional traditions, but Wes came out of science and as someone who's a product of the scientific revolution, I found that really compelling. And uh, so I've learned a lot by reading Wes over the years. And in the last five, 10 years, I've started working with him. We've, as you pointed out, been recording a podcast. Uh, we've been working on books together. And it's an attempt to synthesize all of these problems that we're talking about. The problems of social justice and the problems of ecological sustainability, challenging the, the narrative of hierarchy and domination. Uh, and in this case, doing it with a guy who's, you know, an 84-year-old white guy from Kansas, <laughs> very different than the atmosphere I, people I would be involved with in feminist or anti-racist movements. But what one of the, the great things about it is it's it's helped me, you know, deepen my sense of the connection between all of these movements. And Wes, who doesn't have any you know, formal experience in the feminist movement, and I have been having great conversations about how radical feminism dovetails with his ecological vision. And, and so it's not only been a project to try and articulate ideas and make arguments about social policy, 
it's also been a great experience in a collaboration. Uh, and I think, you know, this is the theme I keep coming back to. If we don't have space in our lives to connect with people who on the surface may not have a lot in common with us and find the human connections, it's hard to imagine a progressive future. And as you pointed out, social media is part of why this is so hard these days. But the the fracturing, the paralysis, the 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 replacement of principled argument with name calling, none of this is going to get us to where we want to go, which is to a just and sustainable human presence on the planet. And so the connections between, you know, a guy in Kansas who's most well known for breeding perennial grain crops and a critique of pornography may not be evident, but I've been trying to write in a way that makes those connections. Well, I was really impressed to see your discussion of perennial grain crops because there's been a lot of, well, going back to 2012, the week I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, I was working on Vandana Shiva's farm in Dehradun in Northern India on cataloging rice propagation. And I loved the work I did there uh, a lot because it brought me back to some of the larger issues that farmers today in India are confronting, that farmers when I was in Haiti were confronting. Monsanto, oh my God. Mm -hmm. This, I was at a meeting of the FAO branch of the UN and it was really shocking to see the minister of agriculture in Haiti say that the farmers were there protesting and he said but we welcome their seeds and I said to him I said are you aware that the seeds they are giving do not actually give the farmers more than one use they can't propagate the seeds they can't they can't live from the land without being hooked onto the ivy of Monsanto this wasn't a gift this was a this was a uh, a free drug, you know, um, I forgot the word for this. I'm sorry, I'm not thinking in English, but when like drug dealers would want to get people hooked on drugs and they give them a little yeah. bit so they could get hooked. It was yeah. that. And the farmers in Haiti recognized that. They came and the average age of the farmers in Haiti at that meeting could not have been more than 23, 24. The elderly farmers were in Haiti, but not at the meeting. And these guys were just furious that their own Elected officials did not have their back. Everyone was giving, quote unquote, giving things to people in Haiti after the earthquake, but none of it useful. Uh, sugary, artificially colored drinks were found everywhere. Tampico, I wrote about it in a chapter of my book on the subject. And I find it really uh, innervating, you know, the whole idea that our media is focused on gender identity where it should perhaps be focused more on, uh, you know, Al Jazeera has been covering this quite well, but the farmer riots in India. Why are farmers doing this? There's a reason behind it. And it's a very similar to the reasons that farmers around the planet have been pushing back. We saw this in Mexico shortly after NAFTA was signed as well. And my worry is that our self-interest in the West, because we have the relative means to be uh, belly gazing, as it were, we're alighting the greater human project and people who are really at the lower end of the ladder being, for lack of a better work, shat upon 
by multinational interests and by a quickly de degrading environment. So, yeah. you know, what I find really lovely about the tone of your podcast, Stephen, is just like, especially from, you know, this lockdown year, it's like, <laughs> oh my God, sanity, you know? Like, is, is it necessary perhaps that people start taking massive social media breaks and take a walk in their local forest, you know? Because it seems like people have gotten so far away what is real that they've lost sight of it all. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And Wes emphasizes the importance of, of living where you live, you know, that being immersed in the world. And that doesn't just mean, you know, people who live uh, out in a relatively, uh, you know, sort of quote unquote natural setting. You can live in a city and still try to experience the natural world in which you live. Uh, you also mentioned India and, and just a brief digression because uh, I want to emphasize, um, again, the kind of intersectionality uh, that once you start looking at these issues, there are common themes across. Uh, my main experience in India is, is through a, a website called PARI, uh, People's Archive of Rural India. It's a project started by a well-known journalist in India, a friend of mine named P. Sainath. And uh, Sainath is, is probably the, the single journalist most responsible for uh, alerting the world to the agricultural crisis in India over the last 10, 15 years, the wave of farmer suicides when despondent farmers would take their own lives after going into debt. And what's important about it, I, I think helps, you know, again, emphasize the connected nature of all of this. Uh, India, of course, is a patriarchal society like virtually everywhere else in the world. Uh, women uh, really suffer uh, economically and in, in family terms often. His work has emphasized that. The way capitalism is squeezing Indian farmers, the way that, you know, a kind of technological fundamentalism, a belief in pesticides, herbicides, and genetically modified crops to so-called save the world has actually made the conditions for farmers in India worse. It's exacerbated both the ecological problems as well as the social problems. And in a world, you know, where capitalism encourages us to focus on the trivial and on consumption, the vast majority of India's population still lives in the countryside and their conditions have worsened, even though India has, you know, you know added to its, you know, wealth and power in other ways. Uh, Religious fundamentalism is a part of that story. Uh, it, it, everywhere you look, if you go deeply, you see the way these systems of hierarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, religious fundamentalism, patriarchy are connected and also part of this human onslaught against the natural world. Uh, and I, I, I mean, maybe this is where you know, a good place for me to finally shut up, but uh, if you look honestly at all of that, as I keep saying, it is painful. And the only way I know to deal with pain is collectively. If you are alone and isolated in your suffering, you are lost. If you are together with other people who can face that collectively, you have a shot. <laughs> and I think that's what's true for us individually. You know, the need for a community, the need for connection 
is true on a global scale as well. And so, um, you know, to go back where we started, for me, the first opening into this world I saw was through radical feminism. Radical feminism, which many people think of as this harsh, um, you know, humorless ideology, actually was a, a great place for me to enter into this way of seeing the world and to do it not only with a kind of harshness, which is appropriate, but um, a sense of my own humanity, uh, a sense of my connection to others. Uh, and it's, you know, it's served me well over the last 35 years as I try to struggle with this. So, um, you know, I've said for many years now that uh, men often think of radical feminism as a threat, you know, that whatever feminists are going to do, it's not going to be good for men. And I have been arguing over and over again that feminism, especially the most radical feminism, is not a threat to men. It is a gift to us. And I hope that, you know, more men will consider that. Oh,